Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Ed Dias was a smart, talented, athletic kid from Texas who had a passion for flying, movie star good looks, and a flair for acting. Thanks to a chance encounter on a highway in the middle of nowhere, he went on to become an ace fighter pilot, lead men with guns ablazing in America's first amphibious attack during World War II, survived the Bataan Death March, and escaped a harsh Japanese POW camp. All the while, Dias kept quietly inspiring and leading everyone he encountered. Today on the show, I discuss this real-life G.I. Joe with writer and filmmaker John Lucas. John is the author of Escape from Davo, and he made a documentary about Dice called 4443, narrated by A1 podcast guest Dale Dye. John shares how Dice started his military career as a fighter pilot during World War II, but ended up leading men on the ground in the earliest infantry battles in the Pacific. We then dig into Dice's experience during the Bantan Death March and how he continued to support his men during the Crucible. John then shares how Dice, along with nine other men, escaped from one of Japan's harshest prison camps and how he fought his way out of the jungle to let his government know of the atrocities going on in the Philippines. We end our conversation with a discussion of why Ed didn't win the Medal of Honor, despite his heroic actions, his tragic death, and leadership lessons we can all take from him. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash dies. That's D-Y-E-S-S. John Lucas, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So uh, you reached out to me after, I think we did the podcast about The Liberator, right? The guy- Alex Kershaw's book. Yeah, Alex Kershaw's book. Incredible story, just following the 45th Infantry all the way from Italy to Germany. You reached out to me and said, hey, I've got another story that a lot of people don't know about, and the guy's incredible. His name's Ed Dies. Before we get into the details, how did you discover this story of Ed Dies and why do so few people know about him? Well, Brett, it's a, an excellent way to start off. Very few people know about Ed Dias just because Battle of Bataan, you know, in the, in the, the, it was the darkest, earliest days of World War II, it was a loss. 
I, I think, uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Alex's book, you know, and Felix Sparks. We, we tend to dwell on the, the victories, you know, in terms of military history, especially, you know, in the U.S. I think it, it is a, uh, you know, I don't know if it's a, an ego thing. Definitely, you know, we, we don't want to talk about when things went wrong. That was a situation where things went very wrong. So I think that his story has been, you know, as he was a big part of that battle, it was the, the largest, remains the largest surrender in U.S. military history. And that's, that's probably the, you know, the, the reason why we haven't heard that much about it. Right. But, you know, despite losing that, he did some incredible stuff. We're going to get into what he did because he is like a real life G.I. Joe. But before we there, let's get to his background. Where, where was Ed from? Where was he raised? And he started off as a a pilot. So did he have an interest in aviation even as a young man? Yes. That, that, that's a great line uh, to call him G.I. Joe. I, I've used Captain America quite a lot and <laughs> they're both interchangeable. He, he is almost a, you know, a superhero type figure. And, uh, you know, it's strange sort of, I actually go back to the, your previous question. You know, I was researching this story about this escape from a Japanese prison camp. It was the only large scale POW escape of the Pacific war. Obviously, Colonel Dias participated in that. He was, you know, a prime mover in that story. But it was through the course of researching that escape story that I got into the Battle of Bataan in Corregidor, again, the early part of the war in the Philippines, and Dias's name popped up everywhere. So this is, you know, long before he became a prisoner of war, before the Bataan Death March, he was basically G.I. Joeing it around in the Philippines. In, in the air, on the ground, and, and, and doing everything he possibly could. So yeah, I mean, as a young man, he, he was kind of exceptional even as a young man. He showed a lot of uh, leadership potential. I mean, he's kind of Mr. All-American even as a teenager, right? Yes. I mean, you know, he's, you know to go get into his background, growing up in Texas, a small town called Albany, and basically it was, was the frontier. He was born in uh, 1916, and, uh, you know, it was the kind of town where residents at his time, they remember... Billy the Kid, Wyatt Earp coming through there. There's a lot going on in the country at this time. And, you know, in terms of progress moving forward, the new frontier was the sky. It was airplanes, the aviation boom post-World War One into the 20s. And that's, you know, he, he got hooked. There were a bunch of guys, you know, barnstorming pilots, World War One guys that would, you know, land in these small towns out in the you know, middle of Texas, Midwest. They'd try to make a few bucks by taking up uh, townspeople for, for airplane rides. And Ed Dias, he, he had his first ride at the age of four, and he was, he was hooked ever since. And he like, saved up for money, like, you know, did odd jobs so he could take pilot lessons. Even as, I think he was like a teenager when that happened. Right, yeah. He worked several, several odd jobs in order to be able to take flying lessons. And I think it was, you know, it was one of those things where, I, you know, I guess for, you know, for, for a boy or something back then, I'm sure, you know, sports were you know, a big deal. But I think a lot, a lot of these guys, they looked up to pilots and, and things who were doing these, you know, extraordinary technological feats. He was into Charles Lindbergh, I guess, instead of, you know, Babe Ruth. But he was he was very resourceful. And again, keep in mind, this is, you know, the Great Depression. Nobody was was sitting around, you know, watching TV or playing on the internet, or, you know, no cell phones. You're like, yes, he was out and about. He was busy working and, you know, like I said, doing odd jobs and, you know, multiple things in order to to indulge his love of flying, but also to sort of, uh, you know, further his education. Did he sign up to be a army pilot right out of high school or did he have other plans and then got diverted there? No, you know what? He, he was, he was kind of, you know, a jack of all trades in high school, class president, obviously, you know, his leadership skills, you know, were, were evident from an early age. He was really into acting. He had a, he had a dramatic flair and he was great at sports. 
kept the flying thing on the down low. I don't think his his mother wasn't very very keen into it, so I think the the, the flying lessons were very secret. And he ended up going away to school, a place called John Tarleton Agricultural College, it's now Tarleton State in Stephenville, Texas, about an hour away from Albany, outside of Abilene, where the, the Air Force Base is named for him. Graduated from there again, did all the same things in high school, kind of, you know, was big man on campus. And, and then when he graduated, he, well, he was also an ROTC. That was a uh, high school and college thing. So, you know, he, he had that, I guess, early military tendencies as well. But, you know, it's a great story. He was hitchhiking to the University of Texas in Austin. After he, you know, got his undergraduate degree, he was going to go to law school. His father was a was a judge. He, he never got to Austin, though. He ended up being picked up by a, uh, a flyer, a guy who had washed out of the Randolph and Kelly Field training program, which was called the West Point of the Air at the time, before, before we had an Air Force Academy. So he never made it to Austin. He, he literally and figuratively did a U-turn with his life and went back and, and told his father, he said that, you know, I want to I be a pilot and uh, I want to fly the fastest aircraft around. And there was only one way to do that at the time, and that was the United States military. So how did he fare in his early in his military career? This was before World War II started, I assume, that he Correct. joined Correct. This was, um, right, the mid to late 1930s. Once he, he was accepted into the flight training program, you know, the West Point of the Air, and it was just, you know, a, a perfect fit. Basically went to the head of the class in terms of leadership, flying skills, and everything that was, was needed. And kind of made his way up, uh, you know, through the ranks and then became the country's youngest squadron commander in 1940. And where was he stationed, you know, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor? Did he have a role in Pearl Harbor at, at all? Uh, no, actually, he was he was in the Philippines and he, he left the U.S. He deployed in November 1941. He arrived in Manila Thanksgiving Day 1941, which was uh, about two weeks before the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so he was already there. He was, uh, you know, at the, on the the tip of the spear, I guess you could say, in terms of, you know, our most far-flung outpost in the Pacific, the Philippines. And, you know, it's interesting because Pearl Harbor really gets, you know, the all the attention December 7th, 1941. But December 8th was the date in the Philippines due to the, you know, the international dateline factor. The Japanese, you know, they hit Pearl Harbor once and they hit them pretty hard, but they hit the Philippines December 8th. And the difference between, you know, the, the famous day of infamy in Pearl Harbor, they kept coming back to the Philippines and kept leveling our forces there, you know, throughout December. So, so Dias was, you know, he was in the thick of it from, from day one. Yeah. And he shot down several planes, I think, in those, those skirmishes. Yes. He shot down reportedly six planes, which would qualify him as, as an ace. You need five, five enemy, uh, five enemy planes to qualify as an ace. He shot up a Japanese truck convoy. Unfortunately, though, uh, with the loss of records, and this was an early part of the war, again, there were no gun cameras on the fighter planes, P-40 Warhawks at the time. You know, but that, that was kind of the least of his worries was <laughs> at the time was, you know, being able to get credit for shooting down the planes. Would have been nice, but you know, there, there were a lot of other things going on. Shortage of food, shortage of ammunition. There wasn't enough oxygen for the high-altitude compressors, so these guys, you know, they couldn't they couldn't really get in any high altitude dogfights. So there was, uh, you know, he was making do with, with what he had. But again, you know, the way that guy operated, he, he functioned spectacularly, you know, with very limited resources. How old was he at this time? Uh, he started out, when the war started, he was 25. Okay, so he's 25. So, you know, about mid-20s, but still pretty young, right? I think right. it's funny, sometimes whenever, I, I tend to do this, when I think back to like World War II vets, I'm like, oh yeah, they were like in their 30s, but like these guys, like someone like 19, 20, 
21, like flying big beef, you know, bombers and fighter jets. Like these were really young guys. Exactly. And that's, that's, that's something that I've always, you know, found, found as amazing, you know, it, similarly, uh, it, it's, it's strange. I think we do have a tendency you know, when you're studying history, especially, you know, you think back at the, the, the revolutionary war, you know, and you, you think of those guys as just being a bunch of old timers, you know, and with the exception of Ben Franklin, they were all in their twenties. And I think Washington was, you know, in his low thirties, <laughs> you know, so these guys are all very young and, you know, it was similarly with with World War II. You know, the, these guys are put on the front lines right off the bat. You know, and again, as you know, he was in the service. You know, before the war, obviously, wasn't a part of the draft. He wasn't. You know, he was he was in it from day one. So he was one of those guys that was uh, kind of learning, learning as he went. You know, as a young guy. You know, and started out as as an amateur <laughs> command, right? And literally becoming a professional in a matter of matter of weeks. All right. So here's Dias. He's beginning of the war, basically an ace. Because he shot, you know, shooting down Japanese zeros, but suddenly, like he become, he has to become an infantryman. So he goes from fighter pilot to, you know, you know, basically a grunt on the ground. Like, how did that happen? How did? Why did he have to go from being a pilot to an infantryman? It was a really unfortunate turn of events. You know, the the famous line that Dias uttered. You know, he 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 joined the he joined the military to fly planes. He wanted to be, you know, fighting a war in a cockpit. Not the jungle was out on patrol as 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 an infantryman and was overheard to remark to one of his one of his troops that uh, he'd rather be back home in, in Texas staring at the southbound end of a northbound mule. He was, you know, he, he wasn't happy with the situation, but again, the uh, exigencies of the of the situation. Uh, the Japanese had a blockade on the you know, the main Pacific battle fleet was basically demolished. We lucked out that they didn't hit any of the carriers at Pearl Harbor, but we, we couldn't muster force for any convoys. We couldn't relieve the Philippines. We couldn't get reinforcements, supplies. After a while, you know, attrition basically took care of our, our, our small air force in the Philippines at the time. And so Dias was uh, taken out of the cockpit, handed a rifle and sent into the jungle. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of the problem too, we talked about this in my, we did a podcast about Lucky 666. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time, at the beginning of the war, the strategy for the allies was Europe first, right? So like most of the resources were going to Europe and, you know, the guys in the Pacific weren't really getting that much. Exactly. You nailed it. Uh, you know, and to be perfectly honest, I think you know, to go back to even the first question, why have we not heard of Ed Dias? Why isn't this story, you know, gotten, gotten more attention is I think there, there still is a Europe first mentality. I think we, you know, we, I don't know the exact numbers, but if you look at, you know, publishing houses, you know, Hollywood, European movies, European theater stories are are predominant. And I think that that's just partially a factor of most people have some type of historical or hereditary ties to Europe, to the continent. And it was just a more, you know, a romantic type war, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're basically dealing with a bunch of, you know, natives don't speak English. There's, there's no big cities. There's nothing. There's nothing that, that geographically or, or you know, historically connects anybody to all these little islands and atolls, basically out in the out in the middle of nowhere. And so, yes, I mean, he was he was suffering from uh, you know the the Europe first strategy, where you know the the lion's share of the United States and uh, as the arsenal of democracy was was sending around the world, the Philippines got very little of it, and that's that's a, a great tragedy, you know, in my opinion. Is you know the decision was made, obviously a strategic one. That you know we would be basically su- supporting the war efforts of, of almost every other country, uh, Great Britain, Soviet Union, but yet our own guys were left out. Right, but so yeah, 
So Ed didn't like the situation, but he still made the best of it. Like, what did he do to overcome this challenge, especially the challenge of leading men who are probably demoralized because of the situation? Right. Uh, you know, and it's again, you know, he he was fortunate in you know in having these these very special you know this innate talent for leadership. But the men under his command, they 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 weren't really digging the the new roles either. And and keep in mind, it's it's, it's a lot different than you know current military training where, you know, almost everybody has some type of, you know, has to qualify for marksmanship or, you know, knows how to pitch a tent or, you know, spend the night out in the field somewhere, use a compass, you know, go on long hikes, endurance, stamina, that type of thing. Back then, uh, you know, the military training was a lot different. If you went in the Air Force, you're going to be a pilot. You, you spent your time around planes. If you're going to be a mechanic. You were taking apart engines. And so these guys had no idea how to do how to, how to be basic field soldiers. That was just you know a product of the era. But Dias, thankfully, through his through his background, his upbringing, you know, growing up again, kind of on the, the frontier in Texas, guy knew how to he knew how to ride a horse. He was he was handy with with uh, with firearms, and so he was able to sort of transmit that knowledge through his leadership skills, through the first force of his personality, basically, to sort of serve as uh, you know a, a a commanding officer, but also a drill sergeant, also a uh, you know a weapons expert, communicate everything he knew to to his men. And I think that's these guys are very fortunate that you know he did have that background, that upbringing and training, and I think it you know it it helped them get through a very difficult situation. Right. What I thought was impressive, like he he didn't wait around for someone to tell him to do that. He just did it. Like he saw a problem and he just like all right, I need to show these guys how to how to shoot. And we're going to train for that now. Exactly. I mean, there was, uh, you know, it was it was funny that you know some of the stories I've heard, and uh, I've been fortunate to, to interview guys who served with him uh, in his unit, and they're basically all gone now, except for except there's one sort of lone survivor left. And from what you know, this gentleman told me, Lieutenant Colonel Calgill, John Calgill is his name. Dias didn't believe in sitting around. He was obviously a junior officer, so he knew how to take and. and fulfill orders, but he was, he was very proactive. All right. So Dias in the Philippines, because he's there, he had the opportunity to take part in America's first amphibious battle of World War II. Uh, so, so tell us about that, that battle. February 2nd, 1942, the Battle of Aglolama Bay on the West Coast, the Philippines, the Bataan Peninsula. Very, very extraordinary circumstances, but, you know, trying times you know, bring out the best in, in extraordinary people. And Dias was there at the right time, the right place, and the right moment in history. You know, it's really hard to describe how a fighter pilot ended up leading America's first amphibious landing of the war. He had, he had demonstrated such proficiency as as an infantry leader, as a ground pounder, as a, as a real true warrior, instead of just being a flyboy, that high command, they figured that there was only one guy who could who could successfully pull off this mission. And Dias, he jumped at the opportunity. Yeah, there's this line you described in this document you prepared for the Texas Medal of Honor. You talk about the, the men were just, they were in a dire situation. It was, this, it was a tough battle. And then Dias is able to rally his men. I loved what he, what he said. He talked about how did, how did Dias rally his men who were just kind of, you know, they were sitting still out of fear, basically. Right. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, at the time, and to give you a little bit of background, the Japanese intended to conquer the Philippines in 45 days. That was their, that was their timetable, their schedule, because they wanted to get south, you know, the very oil-rich resources, the Dutch East Indies, break through that barrier and cut off, cut off the Allied supply chain to, the, to Hawaii and to the West Coast. They wanted to get down to Australia. 
and but they needed to conquer the Philippines and do it quickly. And they got kind of desperate, so they tried basically an end run on Bataan, you know, landing 2,000 troops in hopes that they could, you know, get behind our lines and sow chaos in the rear echelon and bring this campaign to a conclusion. But fortunately, these these airmen dies, the 21st Pursuit Squadron, a lot of shipless sailors and, you know, a similar kind of a hard scrabble ragtag outfit stopped these guys in the jungles. And then, uh, you know, when the landing took place is because there were a few of these Japanese soldiers left. As you studied the war, you know that uh, the fanaticism of the average Japanese soldier was was basically unmatched by any other combatants during the war. So there was a, a handful of these guys that refused to surrender. But unlike, you know, the History Channel documentaries and all the old newsreel footage, you know, this, these guys didn't have flamethrowers. They couldn't call in airstrikes. They didn't basically didn't have any ships to bombard bombard these guys uh, offshore who had, you know, fortified themselves in these these caves and these little uh, redoubts, you know, on the coast there. So we had to make an amphibious landing, and that's that's where Dias came in. You know, he, he organized and planned the whole mission from from start to finish. Handpicked the guys from his unit, guys who were you know the crack uh, shooters in the outfit, guys he knew were were tested under under fire and they wouldn't crumble or wilt. But this was this was a new thing. I guess it was one thing to be able to ask these guys, you know, these airmen, these pilots, and mechanics to, to fight in the jungle. It's another thing to ask them to charge up on a beach, <laughs> you know, in terms of enemy fire. So a lot of them, yes, a lot of them did freeze, and you know, partially fear, partially there's no you have no training to fall back on. But in that Dias, he was the first one up on the beach. He's, he's firing a Lewis machine gun, uh, you know, basically from the hip, almost you know a Hollywood type. You know, cowboy story. So Dias is up on the he's up on the beach there. You know, Japanese planes are are shooting at him. You know, dropping fragmentation bombs. Plus these entrenched soldiers, you know, that are hugging the shoreline there in their little uh, rocky caves. They're firing at him. So he's basically trying to you know handle this entire situation and get these guys to join him on the beach. So he's not the only one fighting this, uh, making a one man landing. I guess the best best way you could describe it was he he shamed them into into being men into during their duty and they all kind of snapped out of their their funk and they joined him and uh, battle made a successful conclusion and ended up stopping the Japanese threat. Long story long story short, you know the Japanese planned on taking the Philippines in forty five days. It took them one twenty. Right. Yeah. I mean, he said he said like, "Come on, men, aren't aren't you men?" I mean, it, like that description, it sounds like, like from a John Wayne movie, you know, World War II movie. It's like, it's like textbook. Exactly. It's like Sands of Iwo Jima. You know, it's an old black and white. You, you know, you can imagine uh, him there, you know, exhorting these guys to to do their duty. And he was basically, you know, calling out the manhood of, of these guys. Uh, you know, you, you'd, you'd rather almost get shot, maimed, wounded, killed than appear to be a coward. These guys, they looked after and they looked up to Dias. And I think they wanted to emulate him, you know, in that regard. He was, you know, he was a leader, but he was, you know, he was a, a man among men, not just, you know, in the air or on the, you know, on the ground, but in pretty much everything he did. So, you know, they, they, they didn't want to let him down. And I think that was, that was a big part of it as well. I mean, they, they liked him so much and, it, you know, again, it's not a, wasn't a fear thing. It wasn't a disciplinary thing. I mean, it was, you know, they wanted to prove they were men, but they also wanted to be accepted by by Ed Dias, by their commanding officer. And again, you know, this 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 wonderful uh, you know warrior, but a, a great human being who they they looked up to, inspired to. So, what was the outcome of that battle? Did, did they win? 
Yes, they, they completely wiped out uh, you know, all the, the Japanese on the beachhead with only actually one casualty, which out of 20-some men was, is, is unbelievable. Sometimes you can confuse bravery and, and, and glory you know, and all those things. And like I said, you know, rushing into the battle you know, with little regard for your own personal safety. But, but Dias, he, was, he wanted to bring his guys home as well. I think he, he did think of them as a, as a family. So he was, he was not just a commanding officer and a friend. He was, he was also kind of a father figure, even though he was only some cases, a few years you know, older than these guys. I think he thought that, Hey, uncle Sam trusted me with their lives. And uh, I want to do my best to get them you know, home to their loved ones and their families. You know, he, he wasn't always playing Rambo. Let's just say that he was, you know, he was trying to, to save lives as well. So what happened to Dias and his unit after the battle of Agaloma Bay. Well, a- after the successful landing and the conclusion, uh, that was the climax of the Battle of the Points. And, uh, you know, medals were handed out. Dias, the other pilot with him, received the uh, Distinguished Service Cross, which is the, the second highest medal for valor you can receive in U.S. military. The enlisted men all received silver stars. But for Dias, the, the bigger reward was he was returned to flight duty. We, you know, had managed to cobble together a handful of planes. And uh, so he was basically put in charge of all air operations on Bataan and, and which was running what was called the Bamboo Fleet. It was a small, small number of aircraft. A lot of them were unarmed, basically sort of training planes. So he started, uh, he started figuring out, OK, you know, what, what, what can I do with this small handful of planes? How can I, again, be on the giving part of it instead of taking it? So he was returned to flight duty and started putting together uh, more targets for the Japanese. But he eventually gets taken prisoner at Bantan. So like, what, well, how'd that happen? It's, that's another part of, you know, sort of Dias's myth. His legend is that he was ordered, you know, to evacuate the Philippines. Obviously, you know, high command saw that the, the battle was, was going south. Obviously, you know, as a skilled squadron leader, uh, pretty valuable to the war effort. They wanted him out of there. And uh, you think about it, pilots don't, don't do very, uh, you know, can't really help their country behind barbed wire. So they wanted to evacuate Dias, but again, Dias, you know, he, his responsibility to his men, his, his sort of definition of leadership required him to stay. He wasn't going to run out on these guys. And I think he felt as uh, though any, anybody who tried to get off, you know, the baton was, you know, lacking in their, in their duty or their, their sense of manhood. So he sent out basically everybody in his place, which is, uh, you know, again, the way he was very unselfish and very, uh, the best way you could say it is, you know, he, he did care about others more than he cared about himself. That's how he ended up becoming stuck on, stuck on Bataan and, uh, had the misfortune of being in the infamous Bataan death march. And, and how did he fare during the, during that? And, during the Bataan Death March. Well, that the Death March was actually, you know, as bad as 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 you can imagine, as it's been portrayed in history through books and and uh, stories of that nature. Dias had it a little bit worse, just because he was taller than you know than the average GI, you know, blue eyes, blonde hair, that type of thing. So it it made him a target, uh, and plus he was an officer, so he he was a pretty big target for abuse from the Japanese. He took it in stride, literally and figuratively. Uh, I think he understood that if he could deflect some of the blows from his men, from wounded guys, he there was, that, that was no question. He, he would do that. Uh, again, the guy never, ever gave up on anything he ever did in his life. So I'm, I'm curious, did he, I guess, so it sounds like he continued his leadership, natural leadership role even during the march. Definitely. Uh, you know, the, the, the line that he uttered was, 
he said, you know, we were surrendered, but we didn't feel licked. I think there was there was there was a sense of, you know, that these guys didn't lay down their arms uh, out of any type of cowardice or fear. They were, you know, they were ordered to. And uh, so he, you know, even though he was no longer a warrior, he was a prisoner. I think he took the same mentality as he did in combat. Uh, again, whether he was in a cockpit or out in the jungle to survival. And, you know, he, he sort of transformed from, you know, that mindset to being to being a survivor instead of a prisoner. So where did the march go to? What what prison camp did he go to? Well, the march was actually, the Baton Death March, it's, you know, it's one of those confusing things where you think it's just one endless line of prisoners. It was more more or less a series of marches, you know, by different numbers of prisoners and, you know, which the Japanese had collected in various groups and they, they would move out in specific days. And it, from start to finish, the, the march took about 60 miles north into Luzon out of Baton. And uh, depending where you were on the road, where you were on Baton when you surrendered, you know, these guys started trickling into the first prison camp anywhere from three days to three weeks after the surrender. And uh, that first prison camp for all the, the, the men captured on Baton was called Camp O'Donnell. And like I said, it was, it was, you know, heading up into the plains of Luzon out of Baton. Gotcha. So how did he like, so he makes the break. So he's going back. So we, his GI Joe status, like he escapes from the camp. Like how did, how did he pull that off? Because not many people, I don't think, was, was he the only one who were, or would to escape from a, a prisoner camp in the Pacific? Yeah. Well, he wasn't the only, I mean, there were, there were a few other individuals you know, who, who would, who broke out of different camps. And this is throughout, throughout the Pacific, throughout the Far East, you know, the Asian mainland, China, places like that. But he, he moved from Camp Adano to Cabana Chuan, which was basically the largest holding center of the Japanese had of American prisoners in, in the Pacific, uh, again, outside of Manila, plains of Luzon. And, but he was actually transferred to Davao, which was a called the Davao Penal Colony, outside the city of Davao on the island of Mindanao, which was the southernmost island of the Philippines, about 600 miles south of Manila. And the reason he was sent there along with, uh, he was in a group of about 2,000 prisoners that were herded onto this merchant ship, uh, crowded together like cattle pretty much, because the Japanese needed someone, needed prisoners to work the, the penal colony. And that was basically a, a pre-war prison in the Philippine Commonwealth that was designed to be escape proof. It was for all the worst, worst criminals in the Philippines, all the murderers, rapists. It was kind of like their Alcatraz or you know, their Devil's Island. And, uh, but it was also a plantation. And so the Japanese got this bright idea. Well, you know, we have all these thousands of American prisoners of war. Let's, let's put them to work, uh, you know, for, for the, the greater good of the, the Japanese empire and to help the war effort. And so Dias was one of those individuals selected to, to go there again, you know, never, never say die is can do attitude to the Japanese. That camp was escape proof. That was, you know, that, that no one had ever broken out of there you know, in, in its 10 year existence, but to Ed Dias, there was no such thing as uh, an escape proof prison camp or a, uh, you know, or a mission that couldn't be accomplished. So he escapes. Did he escape with other people as well? Other men? Yes, there were, it was a group of 10, uh, 10 Americans, two Filipinos. Uh, the two Filipinos were convicts who had been incarcerated there at the war, both for murder. And they signed on as guides. 10 Americans. It was basically an all-service team, kind of an all-star team of, you know, Dias was an Air, Air Corps guy, his wingman, Sam Gracio, his uh, head mechanic on baton, Lieutenant Leo Bolins, plus three Marines, Captain Austin Schaffner, who was a uh, 
a manly man, if there ever was one football player from the University of Tennessee. Uh, he was a ranking Marine officer. And there were two two lieutenants, great friends of his, Jack Hawkins and Mike Dobrovich, and three Army personnel, a Coast Artillery officer from who fought on Corregidor, plus uh, two enlisted men. Steve Melnick was the officer, Major Melnick, and then Sergeants uh, Bob Spielman and Paul Marshall. And the ranking officer was a Navy commander by the name of Melvin McCoy, who was a uh, one of those living geniuses who uh, graduated from the Naval Academy with the way I understand it, still has the highest ranking in mathematics at, in the academy's history. So you have guys from basically every branch of the service, every part of the country. And uh, Dias, again, used his, his team building skills to, to select this, this group, this, this all-star team of escape artists to, uh, you know, to, to accomplish this mission. And what happened? How did they make it back to the Allies? I mean, that's, you know, escaping is one thing. It's, you know, evading. That's often the hard part. This is usually the part part of the interviews where I say, "Well, buy the book or, or watch the documentary." <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> to not you know give away the entire story. It, it, you know, it's a fascinating uh, you know story of how these guys got out. Uh, you know, basically they walked out the front door. They outsmarted the Japanese. Uh, but then again, you know, as one of the the, the men, Bob Spielman, uh, said, he said, "You know, there, there's no use in escaping if you're just going to go hide under a rock somewhere. So, <laughs> right. You have to." You know, you you have you have to do it for a reason. They they had a reason. They wanted to uh, the, to break the news of the death march and the atrocities that the, the Japanese were committing against the prisoners of war. You know, to the to their government, to the rest of the world. So they you know they had they had the motive. Uh, they figured out the means and basically you know met up with 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 friendly Filipinos and uh, and figured out that uh, you know there was there was a resistance moving movement that uh that had formed after the surrender and there were a lot of guys who you know who didn't give up and uh, a lot of you know local it was basically a you know a filipino army led by you know a few few american officers that had managed to stay out of these prison camps and uh they had coordinated with general macarthur's headquarters in australia and they were receiving you know supplies it sounds you know sort of trite to say it but he basically flagged down a ride with a submarine <laughs> <laughs> You know, and that's that's how he that's how he reached friendly friendly forces. You know, it was him and, and two other individuals, Lieutenant Commander McCoy and Major Melnick, who were uh, you know the first three to to, to get out of the Philippines uh, to meet with MacArthur in Australia, and they were the first ones to to bring out the word of what was going on in the occupied Philippines behind uh, you know Japan's bamboo curtain, so to speak. They they were the first to bring out the news of the death march and the atrocities and, you know, what was going on in these prison camps. But here's where things get kind of crazy because, okay, you figure, okay, they're, they're telling the, their gov- the government officials about the Bantan Death March and w- what the Japanese are doing. It's like the government says, okay, thanks, but like, don't tell anybody. Like, what was going on there? Why didn't the government want these guys to t- talk publicly about what was going on in the Philippines? Exactly. You know, it, it's it's remarkable because, again, you know, you're looking back and, you know, and it's historical hindsight, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, And you think of, boy, you know, these guys just pulled off probably, I mean, the, the greatest escape of World War Two. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, you know, I think Hollywood gives all the credit to the guys in Europe, you know, that Steve McQueen movie, you know, you know, the great escape in Europe. But, but what these guys did, I mean, they, you know, they pulled off something that was impossible. You know, they escaped from an impo- escape-proof prison camp, <laughs> stuck in the middle of this giant swamp, alligators and headhunters and all these things. 
you know, got off an island surrounded by the Japanese Navy, somehow got to friendly forces. And so you think that would probably be worthy of a ticker tape parade. And uh, but the government thought uh, differently. And again, it goes back to what we discussed uh, a few minutes ago. The Europe first policy was was the order of the day strategically. And uh, the United States government, keep in mind, the time period of the war that this happened was it was kind of a gray area you know, of the war, 1943, middle part of the war. You know, we had we had we had gotten past Pearl Harbor. You know, the 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 dark early days where there was nothing but you know a succession of of bitter losses. You know, to turning the tide in Midway Guadalcanal. You know, so we had the Japanese basically kind of holding them at at bay. We had you know reached a reached a uh, you know a, a stalemate with them to a certain extent. But uh, in Europe, the invasion of Europe was was being planned. So you know, late 1943, you're looking at D-Day in June of 44, and you know, the government didn't want to upset the strategic apple cart with uh, with the invasion of Europe and, and everything that that had to go into planning that in terms of, you know, keeping all these disparate allies, Britain, France, Free French and, you know, and all these other countries, uh, you know, on board with the plan that they, uh, you know, they didn't want to disrupt planning for that, jeopardize it because they knew that, uh, you know, if the American people heard what was going on, you know, what the, what the Japanese were doing to their prisoners of war it would have created such a, a, a dramatic outcry for revenge. A lot of people would have would have begged the question, wait a minute, Japan attacked us. They snuck attack us at, at, at Pearl Harbor. Why are we putting them on the back burner? Why are we concentrating on Hitler and Germany first? If you find out your guys are being beheaded and tortured and treated in all these despicable uh, ways, I think that the American public would have, you know, there would have been a vociferous outcry to uh, to make a Pacific first policy instead. So uh, when Dias and these guys, you know, first came home, there was no, there were no ticker tape parades and there was no heroes homecoming. They were, they were told to shut up and, and keep quiet. But eventually this, the government released the story and that catalog, I mean, that caused like, it happened exactly what they thought would happen. The public was just like, no, we got to do something about this. Exactly. And, and I think that, you know, and it, again, it's, I, I get into this in, in much, much greater detail, you know, in my, in my documentary and, and uh, you know, on Colonel Dias's. There's not just, you know, we may think now, you know, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of, you know, low approval ratings for, for all of our politicians. But there's, you know, there weren't any idiots working in the government back then. They figured out, well, hey, we need to harness, uh, you know, this anger and this outrage. And uh, they did it by basically sort of controlling the flow of the story when it was released uh, to coincide with uh, war bond sales. And, uh, you know, basically sort of creating a spark. Uh, that, again, this was this was a period of the war where a lot of people uh, aren't familiar with. Again, kind of right smack in the middle of things between these, you know, more well-known historical events, and uh, not a lot of people are, are aware that the war did drag on for four years, and it wasn't a uh, you know concerted, uh, high-output, high-emotional-feeling uh, uh, situation for the duration of those four years. I think there was you know the initial. Uh, you know, outrage over Pearl Harbor. And then, you know, again, we had, you know, some tide turning victories, but the things had sort of stagnated at this time. Uh, you know, people were, were kind of taking it easy. We, we weren't, we weren't being threatened with invasion on the West coast anymore. You know, Hitler had been, had been turned back in Russia and, you know, things were, things were going in a better direction. I think people started uh, getting a little complacent. War plant industries, people were taking days off, you know, they had problems with, you know, hiring and, and output. Uh, people weren't buying bonds for the war. I think everyone was kind of just getting tired of 
you know, the, the endless slog of this, of this fight. Uh, but this story, the government expertly turned it around as a, uh, it's a pretty much an ingenious propaganda move to, to light a fire under everybody. What happened to Dyes after this? Did he go back to, after he went back to America and back to the Allies, did he get back into battle or what did he have, did the government have other plans for him? You know, it, it's, we talk about this, you know, G.I. Joe and Captain America, you know, and he is this, almost this great Hollywood built or, you know, Hollywood dreamed up hero, but there, there isn't a happy ending, unfortunately. He, uh, you know, he was, he was preparing he was going to get back in a cockpit. He was going to take command of a squadron that was heading over to Europe, flying P-38 Lightnings, which was at the time one of the, you know, the fastest, most heavily armed fighters that you know, we had during the war and one of the most you know, fearsome in terms of you know, the way the enemy uh, regarded it uh, you know, in, in both theaters. And uh, so he was preparing to do that. Fortunately, he, he suffered a, a tragic plane crash over Los Angeles. Uh, Burbank, you know, and it's really, I mean, again, tragic, but, you know, you think about all the things that this guy went through, uh, you know, survived aerial combat, ground combat, leading the first amphibious landing of the war, uh, nearly a full year as, you know, a, a prisoner of the Japanese after the infamous Bataan death march, escaping from a prison camp, he's being on the run for several months and, you know, and surviving the jungle and, and all those things to die in a, uh, you know, in a freak plane crash, it almost it defies it defies uh, convention. No, yeah, it reminded me of how Patton died, right? Like he right. died in a in a car crash after doing all this stuff in Europe, and his last words were, "This is a hell of a way to die." <laughs> you know, it, it's it's amazing. It, it really was. I mean, he's you think about that again, but and you know, plus Patton's life. I mean, if you you look back bigger picture, you know, how, he was wounded in World War One. You know, and all the adventures he had, and you know, in terms of being, you know, being a, uh, you know, a great horseback rider and everything else, you think about all the things that these guys went through. And MacArthur was another one. He'd been shot at everywhere, you know, for for close to thirty years in his military career, and was always, you know, very daring and brave, you know, to sort of escape fate, you know, so many times. I guess maybe maybe die just just sort of, uh, you know, was was. So much of a man, he just kind of ran out of luck or ran out of ran out of his nine lives. I guess you, guess you could say. Right. So he's twenty seven at this time. So still, you know, young man. So as you said, he did all this stuff. You kind of went through what he did in two short years. You hear this, like, man, this guy should win the Medal of Honor or be awarded. Did that happen to him? No. That's and that's you know, uh, it's again another tragic aspect that made it sort of uh, you know the, a, a sad ending instead of a happy ending. Uh, he had several opportunities where he could have been, could have been uh, awarded the Medal of Honor. Again, there were things that happened over in the Philippines, obviously, in terms of loss of records and you know being a part of a losing battle. Uh, you know, things were you know things didn't go the right way or break for him. And you know, you need people to recommend you, and and all the paperwork has to be in order. And that was again, you know, you're you know it's a loss. So you're you're burning documents and records and and things like that. So you know, he was unfortunate in that regard. Uh, he was also, I think he was, he was recommended for it after, for his last, uh, heroic act, which was, he died in that plane crash, but he saved the life of an innocent bystander, you know, a, a motorist who had strayed in his landing path. Uh, you know, Dias could have saved his own life and probably crashed into this car on a street in, in Burbank, but he, he decided to try to, uh, you know, save the life of this, you know, unknown motorist and, you know, in that regard lost his. Uh, he was recommended for the Medal of Honor, but uh, the the motion was was denied, and he received the Soldier's Medal, which is 
a very prestigious award, but it's for action, you know, not involving heroic action, not involving uh, an armed enemy. And, you know, it took place on American soil. So, but, uh, but I guess, you know, in terms of talking about a happy ending, uh, I'm leading a, uh, a, a movement, so to speak, to, to have Dias recommended and uh, reconsidered for the Medal of Honor. And hopefully we can, we can rectify this, this past wrong, which a lot of things happen according, according to, uh, you know, fate and things out of his control. But I think there was also some resistance from, uh, you know, members of the, the President Roosevelt's administration and, and other people. So it was, it was semi-political. Uh, again, Dias was the, uh, you know, kind of a sub- survivor of the Alamo who shows up and wants to tell his story at a, at a particularly bad moment, in, you know, in, in time. So he was, you know, kept quiet and, uh, you know, kind of pinned down by uh, government forces, his own government forces in that regard. But, uh, you know, hopefully we can rectify this situation and uh, and get him the medal he deserves. So, I mean, I love to say there's so many lessons we can get from this guy. But the thing that stands out the most as I read about Ed's story was just his ability to inspire men and his like his leadership under fire. I mean, do you, was that natural? Like, was that something he was just born with or did he, did he consciously develop that? Do we know that? Or this is just, he was just, he was just born with it. I, I, I think it's a little bit of both to, to be honest with you. Uh, right. I mean, if you, if you look at, again, I, I think the innate part of it, he was born with, you know, the, the way to sort of, carry himself the way to, you know, to, to appear before others and to, you know, inspire people. I think he just, he just had that natural personality where he could, you know, he could get people together. He was, a, he was a team builder. You know, he was, he was someone who was a very inspirational, motivational type figure. But if you remember a small line I, I mentioned earlier when describing Dias's background, his upbringing, his personality, he was a hell of an actor. Uh, he, he, you know, he, he was always in, in school theatrical productions and even, once he joined the Air Corps, he still in his spare time uh, acted in, in uh, like local theater communities in Shreveport and uh, at Barksdale Air Force Base, Hamilton Field out in San Francisco. So uh, he kept up his, his his acting skills in that regard. So I think he, he was also sort of uh, aware of, of how he carried himself and how he could appear. And, you know, he could he could put on a good show. Let's just say that. I think if you add all those things up together and in some that that's what made him, you know, a, a great leader. But it, it, it wasn't an act. It truly was him. Yeah. Well, John, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? Or not the book. It's the documentary. Right. Well, the, uh, you know, the, the documentary focuses on specifically on on Ed Dias's exploits and, you know, and his, uh, you know, his the way he you know, the way he led people, the way he, uh, you know, conducted his war, that brief two-year period that you mentioned. The book covers the escape and, you know, adds in the other characters, you know, on a sort of a bigger picture. 450-page book, and then you have an hour documentary. Sometimes the documentary is a little bit easier for, for a lot of people, you know, in a busy world to digest. Uh, you can go to 4-4-43.com. That's the name of the film, 4443. And uh, you can uh, sign the Medal of Honor petition that we have for, for Colonel Dias. Uh, we're nearing almost 30,000 signatures right now. And uh, so we're going to be getting that, getting that out there uh, and uh, sent to the folks in Washington with a lot of other materials, you know, for, uh, for this Medal of Honor uh, request. So, you know, all your listeners out there, if you can, you can sign up for that, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, you know, add your name to the list, join the mission, so to speak. And also the film, the documentary, again, it's an hour long. It was a uh, official selection of the GI Film Festival uh, in Washington. 
and uh, you can purchase DVDs uh, there on the same website, 4-4-43.com. And uh, you know, all the proceeds go towards helping our, uh, you know, this mission to, to get Dias recognized and to get him the, you know, get him the award that he deserves and, frankly, that he earned. Well, John Lucas, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett, hey, pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for, for helping me share this story. Really appreciate it. My guest today was John Lucas. He's the author of the book Escape from Davo, as well as the filmmaker of the documentary 4443. You can find out more information about the film at 4 4 43. You also can buy it there. And you also find out more information about John's mission to get Ed Dice the Medal of Honor there as well. You can also check out our show notes at aom.is/slash dice. It's D-Y-E-S-S, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, if you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.